Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. Since the earliest days of the modern state of Israel, Jews from Arab lands, known as Mizrahim, have had to fight for equal rights and opportunities. Mizrahi Jews were looked down upon by the Zionist establishment as primitive, in many ways the very opposite of the image of the new Western-style Jew that the establishment hoped to foster. And so Mizrahi activists have for decades struggled to be recognized as full and equal members of Israeli society. But often lost amongst the larger struggle are the voices and experiences of Mizrahi women who fought not only for Mizrahi rights, but also for the rights of Mizrahi women to prosper and determine the course of their own lives. We were so often told that our histories are not relevant. For one thing, they weren't relevant because we are Mizrahim, because the Jewish history is, as we are taught in school, European Jewish history, and that our history as women is not important. This is Yali Hashash, a social historian and head of the Gender and Criminology Program at Or Yehuda College in Israel, and a fellow at the Frankel Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. Hashash's book, Whose Daughter Are You? Ways of Speaking Mizrahi Feminism, is a groundbreaking effort to narrate the lives of Mizrahi women throughout the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. It begins during the 19th century, when European powers, including the French, British, Russians, and Austrians, were competing to colonize the Middle East. Part of their agenda was to bring modern ideas, including more opportunities for women, to regions and people they saw as backwards and in need of enlightenment. It's very interesting for women who begin to organize as feminists, because on the one hand, they are very committed to the idea of equality between men and women. On the other hand, they see right through the colonial powers. One of these early Arab Jewish feminists was Beirut-born Esther Azhari Moyal, a leading voice of late 19th century Arab feminism, as well as a journalist and educator. She taught many girls, and she had a very clear view of the Western colonial power. She could tell to her listeners or to her readership that we can emulate European women as they go to work and earn money. We should all be doing that. But she would insist that we must cling to our own culture and not try and be Westerners. Because for her, modernism is to go delve into Arab culture, to delve into the area's culture, and to create new culture as it is engaging European culture, as it is engaging its own roots. And basically, she's part of what we know as the Nahda, the Arab Renaissance happening in the Middle East, and basically redefining modernism and Arabism as being one and the same. It's important to understand, Hashash says, that from the perspective of late 19th century European Jews, many of whom had only recently been emancipated and been granted citizenship, Middle Eastern Jews were seen as an embarrassment that threatened to undermine their newly gained status. 
And so French Jews, for example, were eager to modernize their Ottoman and North African co-religionists throughout the French colonies or regions of influence, which in large part worked directly against Moyal and other Arab feminists' mission to fuse modernist ideas and Arabic culture. They started a chain of schools known as the Alliance, and in these schools, the girls were taught to be good mothers and good wives and to hold the gender roles believed to be appropriate for young women in France or in England or in Europe. It's really important to see that these schools were working to differentiate between Jews and Muslims and to set a very clear line between who's Jewish and who's Arab. And it is the Jews through that education that we're supposed to be evolved. The European Zionists who founded the State of Israel held essentially the same beliefs concerning Arab culture and the hundreds of thousands of Arab Jews who migrated to Israel during the late 1940s and throughout the 1950s. For example, Mizrahi women were stereotyped as having too many children compared to European or Ashkenazi women, even though their birth rates were more or less the same. Nevertheless, that fear from Mizrahi fertility taking over the state resonated in public speeches, in policymaking, in ideas about how dangerous it is for our country that is struggling against so many enemies to be taken by uneducated and uncivilized Jews. That stereotype, among others, Hashar says, was used to strengthen and justify a socioeconomic system that benefited Ashkenazi Jews at the expense of Mizrahi Jews, who were relegated to undesirable, low-paying jobs. So for Mizrahi women, that meant that they were the cleaning ladies, that they were the women doing everything that had to do with physical labor. They were the women working in factories and getting paid by the day instead of having a monthly check. So they populated the most precarious and underpaid jobs in the market. And they were doing it often as young kids, as young teenagers, as girls at the ages of 11, 12, or 13, because the educational system and the working laws permitted it. The situation for Mizrahi Jews generally, and for Mizrahi women in particular, changed in the aftermath of the Six-Day War in 1967, during which the Israeli army conquered the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, which in turn led to an infusion of cheap Palestinian labor into the Israeli workforce. Consequently, there was less need for Mizrahi children to work menial jobs, freeing them to pursue more opportunities, mostly in the form of vocational training. The population at large was seen as unable so much to have abstract thought and to understand higher education, and maybe they should just learn how to be barbers and cosmeticians and clerks 
and they should know how to type. So many women were just studying secretarial jobs or hairdressing. Around the same time, Mizrahi activists were beginning to organize and protest their limited opportunities and status as essentially second-class citizens. This was part of the social protest movements that characterized the late 1960s and early 70s, including the anti-colonial movements, civil rights movements, and feminist movements. Mizrahi women, though, were not active participants in Israeli feminist circles. In fact, they were often the subjects of scholarship done by Ashkenazi Israeli female academics who distinguished themselves as sexually liberated and sophisticated in contrast to Mizrahi women, who they stereotyped as backward and sexually promiscuous. The sexual revolution is beginning to come to Israel, and the main hub of it is Tel Aviv. And middle-class girls and young women are beginning to explore sexuality in very different ways. But when Mizrahi girls and young women are exploring sexuality, they're immediately tagged as what here might be called as bimbos or as very cheap girls who are stupid, uneducated, giving in to their own desires, making themselves available to men and are out there for grabs. Towards the mid-1970s and into the 1980s, the Israeli government extended services and support to include Mizrahim, which in turn allowed many to enter the middle class. Many Mizrahi women, in particular, entered public service and also took advantage of opportunities to pursue higher education. By the second half of the 1990s, a Mizrahi feminist movement began to take shape, led by activists and scholars such as Ella Shochat, a professor of art, public policy, and Middle Eastern studies at New York University. Having had her PhD in New York, she brings this conceptual framework of what is Orientalism and how colonialism plays into forming identities in various places in the world. And she contextualizes Mizrahim into that framework. Vicky Sharan, meanwhile, was a Zionist and active in movements to foster peace between Israelis and Palestinians. And she's one of those people who goes to work at the age of 14 and go to evening school in order to finish her education and then goes on to do a PhD in New York. And she manages to frame so many of the issues of Mizrahi feminism with a very coherent language, with a very accessible language that resonates women's lives. Another leading Mizrahi feminist voice, Tikva Levi, led an organization during the late 1980s that worked with Mizrahi mothers whose children had been relegated to special education classes and vocational tracks in school. Just because their teachers assume that they're not developed enough to have any abstract thoughts or to think like normal children. And those classes are filled with Mizrahi children and after a while also with Ethiopian 
Jews. And so this organization is working throughout the country with mothers who are Palestinian, who are Ethiopian, who are Mizrahi, that are kind of oppressed by the educational system that sees no potential in the children and just sends them to be blue-collar workers. Finally, activist, writer, and filmmaker Ilana Shazor was instrumental in organizing discussion forums for Mizrahi feminists toward the end of the 1980s. Together, they're kind of beginning to create this group that have met constantly for many years and from which many projects and ideas of Mizrahi feminism evolve. And many women who go through this group eventually write books or essays or create feminist Mizrahi thought. Today, Mizrahi feminist thought continues to grow and develop. Although Mizrahi feminist scholars have found it difficult to establish a foothold in Israeli universities. You can count them on one hand. or Maybe you'd use a finger or two from the other hand. This is how scarce those jobs are in terms of availability for Mizrahi women. And this is one of the areas where the conflict between Mizrahi and Ashkenazi women is very, very clear. Because you can see how Ashkenazi feminists hold to gender studies, which is already a very tiny portion of Israeli academia as kind of a fortress of their own with so little of them understanding the importance of widening the spectrum and creating discussion between Palestinian feminists and Mizrahi feminist gender studies. In her work, Hashash is sought to explore and expand the scope of Mizrahi feminist thought. For example, she's critical of the ways in which the shrinking of the public sector and the growth of privatization that began in Israel toward the end of the 1980s has been a double-edged sword for Mizrahi Jews generally and for Mizrahi women in particular. While privatization has produced more opportunities for Mizrahi Jews who had managed to enter the middle class, it's made upward mobility harder for those who remained working class or poverty-stricken. You can see that their poverty is more abject than it used to be. For one thing, because the standard of living is so much higher, right? Now, if you want to live in society, you need to have a phone, you need to have a computer, you need to be able to connect to all kinds of services that were not even available in earlier decades. The combination of a lack of publicly subsidized housing in Israel and skyrocketing costs of housing, as well as fewer secure public sector jobs, has also made life more difficult for Mizrahi women. So many women who, Mm -hmm. for example, have children and whose father is not taking care of the children, and sometimes they're left with debts of their exes, And now they need to take care of children with a job that hardly pays a living wage if they have a job at all. And the state is very slow to respond to any of their needs if they respond at all. Hashash also explores the concept of intergenerational trauma experienced by Mizrahi women throughout the decades as a way to reclaim their histories, 
which were often denied or suppressed by the Israeli education system and by Mizrahi women themselves. So very often what we get is a very fractured memory, a memory that has already been erased, a memory that has already been considered by those remembering as non-important. But it is also a memory of a lot of pain and trauma. Our mothers and grandmothers have gone through being sent to work at a young age, or maybe they went through the kidnapping of children. Children were taken away from them, or they had a history of being so patronized and so ridiculed, and maybe they had a history of denying their own sexuality, or they didn't want to be considered as someone who's not marriage material. It's especially important to capture and tell these stories, Hashash says, at a time when, in her words, they're being appropriated by an extreme right-wing government. The alt-right is presenting itself as the correction for the wrongs that were done by a different ruling party that is considered left, which of course it was never left, but it's called left. And it's presenting itself as being more inclusive. And in many ways, it is more inclusive. But then it is trying to create a united voice against Palestinians. So is it really something that we want to be a part of? The status of Mizrahi Jews and Mizrahi Jewish women especially, compared to Palestinians, also plays an important role in Hashash's work. Influenced by black feminist thought, Hashash uses the characterization of undesirable white people as white trash to shed light on the place of Mizrahi women in Israeli society. Mizrahi Jews are Jews, nonetheless, in a Jewish state. And so they hold the privilege of being Jewish in a Jewish state. They are oppressed as not the right kind of Jews. So when you think about those that are being called and slurred as white trash, you think about people who have the privilege of being white in a state that kind of really believes that white is better. So they hold on to that whiteness as something but they're considered the wrong kind of whites. Mizrahi feminist thought and activism have come a long way over the past several decades. Many activists work to help Mizrahi girls who've been relegated to receiving some par education or have dropped out of school entirely. Mizrahi feminists are also active in the Israeli parliament and the judicial system and are leading voices in the movement for more and better public housing. In many ways, Hashash says, Mizrahi feminists are now at the cutting edge of the Israeli feminist movement. But, she says, Mizrahi feminists still have a long way to go. Most of us, either now we're living in poverty or we come from blue-collar families. And that means that we are not as networked in the world Mm. as our other feminist friends. And we don't have as much access to resources and to support from Jewish communities, from other feminist communities. We just don't have that. And the amazing things that we've been able to do from nothing is just a fraction of what we can do. 
You've been listening to Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The podcast is produced by Conversa. The executive producer is Maya Barzilai. You can find and subscribe to Frankly Judaic anywhere you get podcasts. And if you like the show, please give it a five-star review. Thanks for listening.